You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. CISA declares a modest but satisfying victory for election security, but cautions that it's not over yet. Criminal gangs are using election-themed fishbait and mouse spam campaigns. A new strain of ransomware attacks virtual machines. Robert M. Lee from Dragos on the impact climate change could have on ICS security. Our guest is Kelly White of Risk Recon on healthcare organizations managing risk across extensive third-party relationships. And if you wondered if the criminals who offered to securely destroy the data they stole if the victims paid the ransom, well, signs point to no. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, November 5th, 2020. Now that voting in the U.S. elections has closed, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has announced that it detected no evidence that any foreign adversary succeeded in either preventing citizens from voting or changing vote tallies. CISA credits good preparation, good interagency collaboration, and a sound whole-of-nation approach with the successful defense of the election against foreign meddling. The voting may be over, but counting, litigation, and certification remain in full flood. CISA expects continuing attempts to interfere with certification and, of course, to conduct malign influence campaigns. CISA's rumor control site, cisa.gov slash rumor control, will remain a useful resource through the coming months. Just because state adversaries didn't show up all that much on Tuesday hasn't discouraged the criminals, of course. There's no sign of respite from criminal scams using election-themed come-ons to distribute mal-spam by exploiting uncertainty over the outcome of the vote. Malwarebytes describes how the gang that runs the QBot banking trojan has taken a page from Emotet's playbook, delivering its malicious emails as thread replies to make them less obvious to defenses. Emotet, by the way, continues, Bank Info Security notes, an unwelcome renaissance after its temporary eclipse. Cubot's payload is carried in an attached zip file with the fishbait name Election Interference. In the attachment is an Excel spreadsheet crafted to look like a secure DocuSign file. The marks are invited to enable macros to decrypt the document. Once enabled, the Cubot Trojan calls home to its command and control server for instructions. It harvests and exfiltrates data from the infected machine. It also collects emails from the victim that the Cubot masters can make use of in subsequent mouse spam campaigns. 
World events are the best lure, Malwarebytes concludes, and right now such lures are likely to include election interference, vote fraud, voter suppression, and so on. Caveat lector and don't click, and don't enable macros when some dodgy file of dubious provenance invites you to do so. Bleeping Computer reports on a new strain of ransomware, Regret Locker, that's now being analyzed by several threat researchers. It's got a simple old-school way of communicating its ransom note. No fancy Tor portal, no bombastic gasconade, just a simple email saying, Hello, friend. All your files are encrypted. If you want to restore them, please email us. Regret Locker was first noticed in October, and it's still operating on a relatively small scale. It will, however, bear watching for some of its advanced features. It encrypts virtual hard drives and closes open files for encryption. Regret Locker gets around the challenge of encrypting a large VM disk by mounting a virtual disk file and individually encrypting each file. Coveware's third-party ransomware report describes Maze's retirement and Ryuk resurgence. It also explains why paying ransomware operators to delete stolen data is, as Krebs on Security puts it, bonkers. The trend of ransomware stealing files and threatening to dox the victims in addition to simply encrypting data and rendering them unavailable began in late 2019 and gained steam over 2020. It's now practically routine. At this point, any ransomware infestation ought to be presumed to be a data breach as well until proven otherwise. The reason the gangs do it is clear enough. It gives them additional leverage over the victim. Not just pay up or you won't regain access to your data— that's often reduced to the level of a nuisance with regular effective backup. Instead, it's now pay up and you'll not only get your data back, but you'll be spared the economic damage and embarrassment of having your files displayed for all to see on the internet. And recently, as seen in the case of the Finnish psychotherapeutic clinic Vastmo, the extortionists threatened to release data of patients, or in other cases, data belonging to customers, and even customers of customers, Third and fourth parties are at risk, too. Some victims of this form of attack have sought to reassure the third parties that they've secured their data at risk by paying the ransom and that the extortionists have given assurances that they've deleted all the stolen data. One might think, on a priori grounds alone, that the word of a criminal would amount to a foundation of sand. Still, some victims have built their hopes for recovery on exactly such a foundation. But there's even more reason to mistrust the crook's word. Of course, they're lying, and Coveware has the evidence to prove it. Here's the sorry track record of criminal honor, broken down by ransomware strain. So Dinakibi, victims that paid, were re-extorted weeks later with threats to post the same dataset. Maze, Sekmet, Egregor, which are related groups, data posted on a leak site accidentally or willfully before the client understood there was data taken. Netwalker, data posted of companies that had paid for it not to be leaked. Nespinoza, data posted of companies that had paid for it not to be leaked. And Conti, fake files are shown as proof of deletion. So, better not to be hit in the first place. But if you are, alas, paying for the extortionist goodwill isn't going to get you very far. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. 
Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Kelly White is the co-founder and CEO of Risk Recon, a cybersecurity ratings company that provides third-party security risk management. He joins us with insights on healthcare organizations managing their risk across internet-exposed assets and across extensive third-party relationships. When you look at 12 or so industries that we do broad benchmarks of cyber risk management performance against, healthcare has the third highest rate of critical severity issues in their internet-facing systems. You, you only find higher rates or worse cybersecurity risk performance in the sectors of, you know, government slash public administration and education. Hmm. And for context, finance, no surprise, leads everyone in the quality of their risk management program. So what do you suppose that they need to do? I mean, what sort of steps can they, they take uh, looking forward uh, to, to be in a better place with this? I don't think there's any shortcuts for doing cybersecurity risk management well. It comes from the top down, the tone that the executive team sets within the organization, and setting a high priority around the importance of cybersecurity risk management, privacy, and so forth. And that gets instantiated in the funding and the resources that they bring to bear to solve that problem. And as an organization executes on that year over year, things get better over time. When you look at the ecosystem of healthcare, where you have pharmaceutical companies or hospitals, for example, 
um, engaging partners, sharing sensitive data with them, working with healthcare tech companies and so forth. That third-party risk management team inside the organization at these, you know, maybe call them these apex customers that can influence and drive entire supply chains to improve their cybersecurity, it's very important that they properly exercise that strength to drive the supply chain into the right direction. And in this case, to improve cybersecurity. Finance has been at third-party risk management on average, if you look at the industry, for about 12 years. Um, It's about half that or less for healthcare companies. So as these companies raise the importance of cyber, good cybersecurity and cybersecurity hygiene to their supply chain of partners, then they in turn respond and, and the bar's raised. Yeah, that's, in, that's an interesting insight. You know, I, I think, and we see this trend as we do these studies across different industries in our, in our risk surface reports, that the larger organizations are much better at managing cybersecurity now, what, what can you take away from this? Um, and it's, again, it's consistent across fields, uh, across industries that we study, that as healthcare organizations are selecting partners, they should be paying attention to the size of that organization. Are they a brand new uh, startup, healthcare startup company, or have they been more established? And that should serve as a very strong indicator that... You know, if it's a much smaller organization, there's going to be a lot more work for them to do in order to address risk that no doubt will be higher there than if they choose a more established partner. That's Kelly White from Risk Recon. And it's my pleasure to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, it's always great to have you back. Um, You know, looking at all these reports about um, the fires out uh, in the western part of the United States and how that has affected things like the delivery of electrical power and indeed um, some electrical service being disconnected because, or or whatever, shut down temporarily because of the risk of starting fires, got me thinking about climate change and ICS security, and is there any sort of overlap there? And and I thought I'd check in with you to see what insights you had to share. Sure. So it's a really good and kind of provocative question in the sense that I don't think we have a lot of experience with it um, as a community, but it's it's a good kind of forward-thinking, what's going to happen kind of question. Um, and my, my take on it is the changing views of our global climate and the support of climate science that we just obviously have to make changes is changing the way that companies operate. And it's highly changing the energy portfolio and the diverse nature of that portfolio. As an example, we've seen way more natural gas in the United States than fossil fuels um, historically. I'm just moving forward from, from trying to change that portfolio. But it also relates to the underpinnings of the technology itself, 
or we're starting to see more diversified energy resources um, and distributed energy resources. We're starting to see um, bigger discussions for storage and um, different ways to do um, storage around the electric system instead of maybe just one larger electric system and then, you know, the distribution of it. Um, We're starting to see oil and gas companies um, explicitly come out and say, we are going to start investing heavily in renewables. Okay, so we know all of that is taking place. Well, what's the impact? Um, well, you're moving away from these much larger, almost castle and moat style, you know, protecting of the industrial control environments to much more highly, you know, diversified and smaller sites. And that complexity in some ways benefits the defenders at first of, yeah, we've got a much more complex system. It'd be harder for adversaries to figure out. But once adversaries figure it out, there's also a hyperscalability that then comes when we're deploying a lot of kind of cookie cutter styled industrial control environments, um, you know, one wind turbine is fairly similar to another. So, you know, to kind of summarize it up and not not turn this into a thesis statement, um, I'll, I'll say that the nature of our industrial control networks and kind of the digital transformation that is taking place around them is pushing an access to them and a scalability to them that adversaries can take advantage of pretty quickly. And so the necessity for doing things like OT-specific cybersecurity then gets really mission critical, even more so than before. And and as a result of climate change and the discussions around it, you're going to see a massively increased attack service, and you're going to see a massively increased um, sort of uh, capability by the adversary, if you will, um, to understand those systems. And and I guess I'll, I'll sort of maybe make that a little bit more tangible. If I want to go out and buy a GE Simplicity SCADA system uh, for a high power, uh, high energy site, you know, it's going to cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially to get everything set up and configured done correctly. Then I got to have the expertise to do it. Then I got to develop the expertise to learn how to attack it. Then there's operations to support it. There, there's so much that goes into it. If I've got, you know, decently available, smaller form factor, cheaper control systems deployed at a renewable site, um, and I've got a thousand of those sites around the world that I could potentially target and learn from before ever going after any of my intended targets, and they might all be connected up through VPNs or cloud resources or similar, we start getting into a different different era um, for what the adversaries can do. Is there a factor here of the fact that change can lead to uncertainty? I'm thinking, you know, you probably have decades of experience with uh, institutional knowledge. I'm thinking particularly on the OT side of someone, of folks knowing how to run coal-fired power plants or natural gas, you know, those sorts of things that have been around for decades. As we transition to emerging technologies does not having that institutional knowledge around, is that a risk itself? Absolutely. Um, One of the greatest defenses we have in industrial environments is system expertise. And so that the the adversaries have to gain it and the defenders should already have it. Um, We start changing out the components, start having an over-reliance on, you know, original equipment manufacturers and vendors more so than internal staff. You, You lose that expertise and then whatever the adversaries gain in expertise is automatically more than you have, which makes it harder to identify the attacks, harder to be resilient against them, um, harder to to really just even think about um, the scenarios that you might want to defend against. So in no way trying to be doom and gloom, but the validation of your statement, you know, the, the plant of the future, if you will, has a lot more automation, a lot more cloud resources and analytics, a lot more connectivity, and a lot less people. 
And in some ways, that's the direction we got to go. And in some ways, that's actually really, really good. There's going to be secondary and tertiary benefits of that that are really wonderful for companies and communities alike, creating higher paying jobs um, for uh, the actual maintenance required for those. But to your mm-hmm. point, as you take that expertise out, you've got to compensate with uh, something um, to reduce the risk as it relates to security. So I usually talk about OT security to CEOs and boards explicitly on the discussion of compensating controls, that this this thing isn't new because the threats are new. Um, the reality is the threats have been around, but now they are getting more sophisticated and aggressive on this topic. But your changing landscape is especially new. It's not an ITOT convergence discussion. It's kind of a digital transformation and cyber threat, you know, kind of uh, convergence, if you will. And, and that is driving a necessity to have those compensating controls. Hmm. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Just follow your nose, it always knows. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.